Now I want to resume our discussion of the four horsemen of Revelation 6, commonly referred to as the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. We had been walking through this section, but um, as we got to the third of the four horsemen, we began to look at the voice that spoke from in the midst of the four living creatures. And we went back into uh, the earlier chapters of Revelation 4 and 5 and we saw that the Lamb was in the midst of the four living creatures. And so we went back from that to looking at the four living creatures and that had us in, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, um, the first ten chapters, to deconstruct the four living creatures who are the same in the book of Ezekiel as they are in the book of Revelation, the fourth and fifth chapters. Uh, so we began to understand that in these very difficult times, in these, a time that great darkness has come and will increase in its intensity upon the earth, that God is lifting the veil of revelation and allowing us to see who we actually are as the people of God from before the foundations of the world. In other words, in other words how God saw us before the foundations of the world. Because you see, in contemporary Christian theology, evangelical theology, the goal has always been, uh, and in fact it's the same as Roman Catholic theology, that's where the evangelicals got it from, the goal has always been to go to heaven when you die. You know, um, the common expression used to be, give me your hand, give God your heart and join the church of your choice. And the promise was, and usually some of the propagators of this gospel would ask the question, what would happen if you died tonight? And, uh, or if the Lord returned? So it was foundationally scare tactic, but it was built upon a theology that is only partial and it's not even the most important component of it. To this very day, if you ask evangelicals the question, what is the gospel really about? They would say it in the following way. They would say, uh, God created man, man sinned, Christ came and died for our sins on the cross and if you accept His salvation, you'll go to heaven when you die, which means you'll avoid going to hell. Now this is Calvinism um, stripped of all of its sophistication in its barest essentials. Calvin of course was a Roman priest, as was Luther uh, before him, and they were the, they're generally credited with being the foundational or, or, or rather of establishing the foundations of modern, uh, well certainly Reformation and then modern evangelical theology. Now all of those things I've said are true, 
They're neither the beginning of the story nor the end of the story. They do not, they do not explain to you why God created man. They focus rather on the risk management, the aspect that had to do with retrieving man from the condition of sin. A condition, by the way, that God planned for before He created man. The Lamb was slain from the foundations of the earth. So this is not a complete theology by any stretch of the imagination. The elements that are said are true, but they do not answer the fundamental question, why? Why did God create man? We've attempted to answer that over and over again, and so I won't dwell on it at this point. God created man in anticipation of man being in Christ. He saw man, he saw the creation in Christ. He looked from the end, from the beginning of the matter to the end, and when he said, We'll make a man in our image and likeness, he understood that to be the man in Christ. Now, the man in Christ is designed to bear the image and likeness of God in creation. So we are put here as part of the corporate Son in our individual capacities and as part of the corporate whole, we are put here to exactly represent the nature and the character of God to to mankind, to humankind. That's why we are here. It isn't primarily about going to heaven when we die, and in fact, although we'll go to heaven when we die, we'll be brought back from heaven when the Lord returns to the earth when He comes back. So if heaven is the final and ultimate destination from from the viewpoint of of, of theology, then it's a disappointment because heaven and earth will pass away and the Lord intends before the passing away of heaven and earth to bring us from heaven upon the return of the Lord, because the story does not end when you die. The story does not even end with the return of the Lord. Now here's why I want to delve into, uh, we, we attempted to delve into the four living creatures and before that the man above the water. The theology that focuses on going to heaven when you die is, continues to see us through the lenses of our humanity, continues to see us as sons of men, not sons of God. Because sons of God are partakers of a divine nature and possessors of a divine character, same as God. That's why He gave us a spirit out of His own person, so He might relate to us spirit to spirit. The descriptions of the man above the water and the descriptions of the four living creatures show man in a glorified form, the glorified form of the sons of God, and more particularly, the unitary and singular whole of the corporate man. And such a being, such a being lives comfortably between the realms of heaven and earth, moves 
between the heavens and the earth and is the same when perceived on the earth as he is as, as is seen when he's perceived from the heavenly. So we see the same four living creatures typified by the four spirits present in the Son of God, the spirit of the lion which is the ruler, the spirit of the eagle which is the prophetic soaring between the realms, the spirit of the ox which we deconstructed to mean the cherubim, the steadfast, the unmovable, the always abounding in the work of the Lord characteristic, where nothing deters you ever from the pursuit of the representation of God which is your purpose for being. And finally the face of a man, uh, to speak of the Son of Man containing uh, these characteristics of the Spirit of God. The man above the water is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who is inclusive of the many members of His body and we saw the symmetry between the way the man above the waters is described and we saw with that how perfectly it coordinates with the risen Christ or with the pre-creation Christ, the one who is clothed in uh, in, uh, light, the one who has a body of beryl, the many splendors of the body of beryl, whose hair, I'm always intrigued by the reference, his hair as white as wool. I once heard a black preacher say, that's the proof that Jesus was black because it's a reference to the texture of hair. That's simply nonsense. It's the connection between the lamb and the lion. It's the indication that he is both the lamb and the lion. But but on to other things. Um, Anytime you domesticate the scripture, anytime you look to the natural world for understanding of the spirit, you're going to be wrong. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So references for example like to the sound, we'll come to this later on, to the sound of uh, the wings of certain demonic characters and the popularized but domesticated version of it that the sound of their wings was the sound of horses running into battle and some erstwhile notable wanted to to stand out by suggesting that uh, uh, John in the book of Revelation did not understand about helicopters. (laughs) So I'm surprised they didn't say it was black helicopters. But again, you, you see this plethora of nonsensical uh, um, attributions on the basis of just domesticating the scriptures, making the scriptures into having, having the natural order of things be the basis of the interpretation of the spiritual. You should never do that, every time you do it you're going to come up short and you'll be flat wrong and that, that being wrong 
will not only deceive you, it will deceive others. Anyway, so we, were, we pulled back the lenses for a panoramic view of this Son of God, the many-membered Christ, the four living creatures being the reference to the corporate man. And above the waters, uh, he stands upon the Word and he knows the times and the seasons. So that's why the angelic that surrounded the man above the waters asked him about the timing of such things. The four living creatures present a truly transcendent picture of the Son of God uh, in His many form, uh, in His many-membered form. The whole idea behind taking us into these particulars of Scripture was to show us how formidable we are, even against our enemy, when who we are is viewed from an eternal point of view, when who we are is viewed as God always intended us to be. So there was always meant to be, as it were, a lifting up out of the ordinary and a transposition of us into uh, carriers of the glory of God. You know, Jesus said as He left the earth in John 17, Father, the glory you have given to me, I have given to them. Some of this glory was seen and spoken of on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured, transformed, and presented as vastly superior to any human form. So much so, Peter understood that he was in the presence of God when he was, to, when he was viewing the, the, the exalted form of Jesus as shown on the mount where he was transfigured, where his figure was like blazing fire, such as we see him again in the book of Revelation and prophetically in books like Daniel and Ezekiel and the like. And in fact, Peter said, we'll make three, th- three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, or three booths to celebrate. A similar example is when Jesus came up out of the water, having been baptized by John the Baptist, and God spoke out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. All of that to say, that my deliberate intention in digressing from the discussion of the four living creatures, uh, I mean, uh, from the four horsemen of the apocalypse, to a discussion first of the four living creatures and also of the man above the waters, was intentional in my desire to present to you a picture of that which God foresaw. This isn't just, this isn't even just the overcoming church. This is the original intent. This is how we were seen in the image and likeness of God. 
when you juxtapose that to failing humanity, corrupt and compromised and subject to the demonic, to schemes and uh, 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 ploys of the enemy to entrap and to contain, when you view this exalted man, when you view this man from the viewpoint of the eternal, how God originally saw man, and you compare that to uh, debauched humanity evincing the progression of, uh, of entropy, the decline that resulted from man's sin in the garden and the subsequent and over time fullness of that decline, you have a radically different picture. One is of helpless humanity subject to the rampaging of the enemy through his schemes and devices which we want to unpack during this next session and the triumphant and glorious result but that matches exactly what was seen from the beginning. So it's an inevitability and what my my hope was, was to lift your gaze, lift your vision so that in these dark and difficult times you do not see yourself cast in the mold or in the shadow of the rest of the human population. That was the intent. So now when I come back to, as I'm about to do, uh, to the four horsemen and pick that up, I want you to keep firmly in your mind that you represent the man above the waters, the one who knows the times and the seasons that have been ordained by God and lives comfortably in the kairoses of God, the revealing in time of the original intents. And when you view yourself through the lenses also of the four living creatures, understand that it was always the intent of God to cause the glory to move from the temple and to hover over and abide upon the four living creatures. So it's, it's, it's how, the, how history was meant to unpack. In type and shadow, the presence of God was over the Ark of the Covenant, was over the Ark of the Covenant in type and shadow. The Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies in the ancient temple and before that the Ark of the Covenant was in a tabernacle in the wilderness. Now we will notice this about uh, the, the presence of God. The presence of God was with and hovered over the ark, the ark of the covenant. It wasn't just in the temple. The presence of God was specifically over the ark of the covenant. Now, the ark of the covenant had or was comprised of a box made of acacia wood overlaid with 
with beaten gold and contained contained the two tablets of stone that God had given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the book of the law, 631 laws, a pot of manna, which is a type of the presence of God, bread from heaven, and Aaron's rod that budded, which was an indication of a kingdom and its rule unconnected to uh, a tree or unconnected to this earth. The rod bud, budded, though it was, had been removed from uh, a root system that sustained it as part of a branch on a tree. Clearly, these elements were symbols of a holy people on the earth, but on top of the, of the lid of the, of the Ark of the Covenant were what? Two cherubims. When you consider that the word cherubim was used to describe the four living creatures in their flight as they were flying back and forth, as they, or as they moved, propelled by the Spirit, wherever the Spirit went, the spirit of the living creatures went with them. And the, and the wheels that were under them sometimes were on the earth, sometimes were above the earth. So they moved by a power that was not sustained by the earth. And they had eyes in them all over the wheels, like the creatures had eyes beneath their wings. This again has to do with seeing and moving as the Spirit of God led the four living creatures to see and to move. Our notion of uh, cherubim as being more or less a type of the angelic does not altogether take into account the more um, inclusive usage of the word cherubim from the word karub, which means ox or oxen, or the plower, which is what oxen did, they drew plows. So God established not only under the cherubim, but for the cherubim, this exalted position which would describe their, their, their order of governance, the rod, it would, uh, it would order, it would speak of how they were supplied economically, the pot of manna, it would, it would describe their righteousness and the covenantal order of that righteousness, which is to say both the, uh, the tablets of stone on which were written the laws of Moses indicating a covenantal relationship entered into by God, and the book of the law, which is how they are to live. So holy people, holy people covenantally bound to the heavens, bound to God, 
who lived not by bread alone but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God, who were ruled as a kingdom. Uh, The rod of Aaron was an indication of the priestly function, the king and priest function that would be undertaken or that would be uh, completely assumed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The earthly appearance would be defined by these four elements, but who they were was depicted on the lid or the cover of the box. They were the cherubim and it was for them that all these things were ordained. Now if God has gone to that length to prepare and to establish a people in the earth, how are we going to be overthrown by any event that comes into the earth? All of which, the timing of which, the sequences of which, the permission for which God must grant. For the enemy cannot operate in the earth without asking the permission of God. We learn that from the book of Job. So, and, and Jesus reinforced that principle when he spoke to, to Pilate. <clears throat> he told Pilate, you, you have no authority over me unless the one who sent me has given you such authority. In other words, nothing can happen to the people of God, nothing can happen in the world other than what God permits and nothing may happen to the people of God other than what He permits to happen to them. But whatever He permits and whatever happens and the sequences in which these things happen, the people of God are prepared and will be prepared for such things. For the picture of them is not that of the Son of Man. Though they live in the flesh, they are not of the world, they are not of the flesh. Increasingly we are being drawn up to the glory of that which was originally descriptive of who God made us to be, a man in the image and the likeness of God. So as we we get back into the more difficult uh, and, and dark uh, passages, or the, the passages that speak of this difficult and dark time that is coming, I want to use the first of these five recordings both to summarize why we studied the man above the water and the four living creatures and to draw your focus up to who we are as the sons of God not as the sons of man. This gospel of going to heaven when we die would make us vulnerable in our thoughts, in our souls, to the rampaging of the enemy upon the earth. But as the sons of God, we know the time, we know the seasons, or we will know the time, we will know the seasons, and we shall overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and the clarity of our purpose in this earth. 
So as we continue this discussion, we'll start with the fourth horse, fourth horseman. Continue to study with me.